And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgil Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo, and it's great to be with you today. Uh, Indeed, coming off Christmas and moving on through the Christmas season, and it's uh, time to, uh, you know, uh, to celebrate the octave of Christmas, and it's also time for us to continue digging and uh, preparing ourselves for explaining and defending the faith. And part of that is catechesis, right? I mean, uh, apologetics, defending the faith is actually a subset of the work of catechesis, of learning what we believe as Catholics. And uh, when I first started this program a couple years ago, I said that apologetics is really where the rubber meets the road of catechesis, because uh, that's really where real life situations encounter what we learn as Catholics. And we're going to need to give good explanations for the hope that's in us. And uh, part of catechesis, of course, is learning the faith. And a major uh, statement or symbol of what we believe is the creed. So we're going to have William Hemsworth, a convert to Catholic faith. We're going to be talking about the creed. And uh, so that's going to be a ton of fun. It's always great to have William on the show. Uh, as you know, William Hemsworth uh doing tremendous work on social media. You can check out his stuff at williamhemsworth.com. Talk about the creed. And, you know, we, we rifle through that at Mass, unfortunately. A lot of us do. We kind of go put our minds on autopilot. When actually it's a very deep and profound prayer uh, that we need to ponder and, and think about. You know, there's a lot of intellectual stuff that we need to meditate on the creed. So that's what we're going to be talking about on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to continue doing what we've been doing, namely sharpening our critical thinking skills with our Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy, by the way, is the ecological fallacy. And also, we're going to meet an early church father. Today's early church father, very, very early church father. And... You know, he is kind of part of the gold standard for apologetics. Uh, He and St. Ignatius of Antioch and Clement of Rome, I think those three are very powerful witnesses to the the Catholic faith at the earliest times, the earliest extra-biblical evidence we have. And uh, today's early church father is St. Polycarp of Smyrna. St. Polycarp of Smyrna. So I guess if you say there's a big three in... uh, Early Church Father evidence for Catholicism, indeed, for the Christian faith. For my money, it would be those three. First Clement, uh, the letters of Ignatius of Antioch, and St. Polycarp is lettered to the Philippians. So we're going to talk about that, the last one, right after I greet everybody. So welcome aboard, everybody. Welcome to the dojo, all of you listening on radio around the country, and also the live stream peeps, I not forgetting you guys. And, of course, uh, all of you listening via podcast around the world, 
either through our handy-dandy phone app or through our flagship website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. And check it out, folks. Uh, upcoming conferences, you definitely want to check it out, especially if you live in California. You don't want to miss the Virgin Most Powerful Conference. Also, other things that are in the works, you can get it right there. And, of course, you can access the programs of Hands-On Apologetics, Jesus 911, Terry and Jesse Show, all the programs are right there on the website. So just scroll down. You'll see a list of shows. Uh, if you want to listen to uh, maybe William Hemsworth talking about the Creed, uh, that would be a great program to listen to on the drive to or from work, you know. Uh, all you have to do is go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org, click on Hands-On Apologetics, and very quickly, today's program will be up there, and you can listen to it at your own convenience. You can download it. You can do all sorts of stuff. You can share it with friends. And, um, yeah, access this program um, when it's at your convenience. I know how life is. Uh, uh, I used to listen, um, actually, this is before live streaming, now that I think about it, but before I got into apologetics, uh, no, I think there was some live streaming. I, I would listen to it at work whenever I could. And uh, to, to EWTM programming, stuff like that. But, you know, there's meetings that are called, there's people, there's interruptions. You know, you're interrupted with the things that you get paid for. So uh, you, ne you never really get a chance to listen to the whole thing at your convenience. Well, you know what? Now you can. And thanks to virginmostpopradio.org. Um, you could listen to it whenever you want. And uh, listen to it many times, in fact. And jot down notes. Which I know several of you do. And I've heard it through email. Speaking of email, the official Dojo Mailbox is question at handsonapologetics.com. It's questions at handsonapologetics.com. And uh, that comes directly to me. So thank you all for your emails. Of course, you know, coming off the holiday, um, or holy day, I should say, um, I am a little behind. I'm trying to catch up. So I know I've seen, you know, email coming in. I'm trying to get to you folks. My apologies in advance. I'll, uh, God willing, hopefully I'll be caught up before the end of the year. <laughs> Which is kind of weird talking about the end of the year, but guess what, folks? The year is about to end. So without further ado, why don't we go to our finding the fallacy for today, which is the ecological fallacy. An ecological fallacy is also the ecological inference fallacy or population fallacy. is a form of fallacy in the interpretation of statistical data that occurs when inference about the nature of individuals are deduced from inferences about a group to which the individuals belong. Okay, so in other words, the ecological fallacy basically uh, is where you take a uh, certain attributes of a particular person within a group or a particular group of people and you refer to all the members. And uh, that's what you cannot do, right? Uh, for example, um, let's say a certain elementary school in your neighborhood uh, had a recent survey, and they eat more ice cream at lunch than any other school in the district. And your next-door neighbor's kid goes to that same school. You can't infer, therefore, this child eats a lot of ice cream because you, you can't use that uh you can't make that kind of inference from the group. So does this occur in apologetics discussions? I think it does. 
not in any serious way that I can think of. But many times people say, you Catholics believe X or something like that. Or, um, or you know, um, things like that. Uh, broad statements about the faith. And maybe we even use it uh, against other people. That uh, a certain statistic about a group uh, that we apply to each and every individual. And if you do that, you commit today's finding the fallacy, which is the ecological fallacy. Let's move on to meet our early church father. Like I said, very big early church father, especially for those of us who defend the faith. Because uh, defending the faith, you use the early church fathers as witnesses to that first faith that was handed on by Jesus to the apostles and to the earliest Christians. And so that's why this early church father is very valuable. St. Polycarp of Smyrna. And St. Polycarp of Smyrna was Bishop of Smyrna. He is one of the apostolic fathers, having been a hearer of the apostle St. John. So we actually have a disciple of St. John. Uh, we have an authentic writing from him. And he is said to be the same Polycarp to whom the seven, one of the seven letters of Ignatius of Antioch is addressed to. Another apostolic father. As you know, he wrote seven letters, one of which was a personal letter. The other ones were to local churches. And that personal letter goes to Polycarp. He died a martyr's death at the age of 86 in the year 155 or 156 AD. So a very, very important witness to the early church. Uh, Jurgen's Faith Early Church Fathers, uh, which we rely on for the segment, says that he has... Uh, his letter to the Philippians, which is written roughly about eighty one thirty five, is one of several letters which Polycarp is known to have written. All that is extant from his pen is the letter to the Philippians. What is preserved, however, is a single letter to the Philippians. It's actually two such letters. So it's not just one, but it's two that appears to be melded together. First letter consists of chapter 13 in the text tradition and possibly chapter 14. It dates from between the immediate, uh, immediately before uh, St. Ignatius arrived at Rome, which would be about 110 AD, and the end of Trajan's reign, 118. Within even this short period, an earlier date is preferable to the latter, says Jurgens. For the first letter, uh, Polycarp to the Philippians is merely a cover note from the Ignatian letters which Polycarp forwarded to the Philippians. The second letter which consists of chapters 1 through 12 in the text tradition, dates from A.D. 135. So basically you have a cover letter to the letters of Ignatius and his own personal letter. And like I said, very, very important witness to the early church um, simply because he is a hearer of St. John the Apostle. So he and Ignatius of Antioch and, and Clement of Rome, those three, along with uh, possibly some other apostolic fathers, represent the earliest extra-biblical writings that we have. And so what they have to say about the faith really comes at the period right after, or maybe even within the lifetimes, of some of the apostles themselves. So talk about valuable witnesses indeed. And that is our early church father for today, St. Polycarp of Smyrna. Coming up next, we're going to be chatting with William Hemsworth, and we're going to talk about the creed. Stay tuned.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And we're going to talk about the creed. You know, the creed is uh, what we recite every Sunday. It's a symbol of what we believe as Catholics. And unfortunately, um, I think a lot of us know the text of the creed, maybe haven't really thought very deeply about what we what we profess every Sunday. And so uh, that's why I'm thrilled to have William Hemsworth with us. As you know, William is a former ordained Baptist and Lutheran who converted to Catholicism while attending seminary. He's passionate about passing the faith on and assistant teaching adults and children in its parish in Tucson, Arizona. He's a popular author, blogger, and podcaster. You can check out his stuff at williamhemsworth.com. Or, you know, if you frequent YouTube, definitely check out his channel. Actually, he's got a couple of them. One's William Hemsworth, and the other one's William Hemsworth, the Bible Catholic. And so, William, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Ah, okay. Well, <laughs> I guess we're having, we're having some connection problems with William. So, uh, as we're working that out... Uh, let me uh, talk a little bit, since we're talking about YouTube, I'll give a quick plug for my own channel on YouTube. How about that? Uh, which is the Apocrypha Apocalypse channel on YouTube. And and that's a channel that I I uh, have along with a frequent guest here on Hands on Apologetics, William Albrecht. I almost said Hemsworth. William Albrecht and also David Zavaris. And uh, that's where we explore the issue of the Old Testament canon. And we get into the weeds, folks, because there is so much misinformation about uh, the Old Testament canon and why Protestants don't accept seven Old Testament books that are found in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles. And uh, so we, we cover everything from... Old Testament evidence, New Testament evidence, early church fathers, councils, uh, orthodoxy, Council of Trent, especially, and everything in between. In fact, I just finished a series on biblical inerrancy. So it's a four-parter right there, free on YouTube. Just go to apocryphaapocalypse.com. And by the way, while you're there, if you're checking it out, share it with your friends. If you know some Protestants who love the Bible... Just think how much more they'd love the Bible with seven extra books that they don't already have in their Protestant translations. Uh, share the the, uh, the site with them. Ask them what they think. Uh, I think they'll appreciate it. In fact, uh, the latest video I put up was, if Tobit was good enough for Jesus, and the inference is it should be good enough for us. Indeed. Uh and so uh, I actually show in the New Testament where Jesus uses uh, the book of Tobit in a very powerful way. So check it out, apocryphalapocalypse.com, or excuse me, Apocalypse on YouTube. Excuse me, that's YouTube channel. While you're there, please sub and hit the like button. And then while you're on YouTube, also check out William Hemsworth, our guest, the Catholic, uh, excuse me, the Bible Catholic, or it's just William Hemsworth slash the Bible Catholic in talking about William Hemsworth. William, welcome to Hands-On Apologetics. Hey, thank you, Gary. Thanks for having me. Sorry about the technology fun that we're having this morning, but it's great to be with you. Thank you for so much having me. Hey, that's just part of the game, my friend. Uh, <laughs> it, at least, you know, I thank God it happened 
in the show rather than what it usually does is like three seconds before I go on the air. <laughs> so <laughs> at least you had to scramble, not me. I don't know if that's a good thing to, to thank God for, but nevertheless, thank God. <laughs> well, you know what? Worst case scenario, we're just doing old school. I'm on the phone instead of on Skype. It's okay. We're still going to get it done. Thanks be to God. That's right. It's all right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it, the topic is the creed. And just thinking about your background, you know, as a Baptist and as a Lutheran, Lutherans, of course, uh, uh, hold a creed in high, high esteem. I believe they're, it's recited right. in their services. Baptist, generally not. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That that's absolutely correct. Even when I grew up as a in the Wesleyan Church, um, didn't hear anything about the creed um, in Baptist Church. Didn't hear about it when I was going through seminary at Liberty. I mean, they touched on it a little bit, but really kind of skipped over it, kind of glossed over it. Like here, this is what it is. It was stuff like Arianism, etc. Pretty much just glossed over it, but there's so much in the creed, so much that is so important to our faith that it's that's really unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, I know. And not only that, but uh, even Catholics, like I mentioned earlier in the program, uh, you know, there's t- points during uh, the Holy Mass that unfortunately we set our brains to autopilot. Yeah. And I, I think the creed is one of those parts where we recite like the most incredible. Uh, revelatory uh, disclosure given to humankind, right? And uh, we mm-hmm. just recite the words. We don't even think about what we're saying. Yeah, that's right. And I bring, I bring this up when I teach children, and even, even the adults, that I teach about the creed in RCIA as well. And I ask them, how many have ever heard of the creed? You know, one or two hands will go up. But when I start reciting, they're like, oh, that's the creed? Oh, I've heard of that before. Okay. And yeah. like, like you said, the brains just kind of go on autopilot, especially the cradle Catholics that are there sponsoring. When they start <laughs> hearing it, they start reciting it, but they're not fully realizing what they're saying, what they're saying that they actually believe. Yeah. And that's really the key thing. When we're saying we are believing something, um, especially when it comes to the creed, and we really don't know what the creed is or what the creed is saying, that's a problem. I mean, that's really what our faith is. We're saying we believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, et cetera, et cetera. And like mm-hmm. you said, there's so much meat on the bone in there. And we, we lose sight of exactly what our forefathers went through um, during that early church period, especially when it came to the creed, um, all the persecution, all the heresies that were happening for us to get this great creed that we have that summarizes our faith in such a unique and powerful way. And it's really the travesty in a lot of respects that we're not really, that we just, like I said, go on autopilot. We're not taking it as seriously as we should because it's just a great summary. And it's like you said, like you said at the top of the show, it's a, it's a prayer as well that if we just recite and constantly reflect on the things that are, re, that are given in the creed, we're going to grow in our faith. We're going to be able to defend our faith. We're going to be able to evangelize a lot more effectively. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because catechesis is always built on the creed. You know, the catechism, right. uh, you know, older catechisms as well. It's always based on the creed and expounding on it. And uh, just going through, just go a couple of words at a time and ponder and contemplate, you know, what's being said. Uh, that would be a great course of prayer. In fact, maybe that's a great book idea. Just have a, you know, praying through the creed yeah. and break it down. But, uh, but we don't have to do that in book form. We could do it right now on the show. 
That's right. So, I mean, the first couple words, I believe. And this is, um, you know, growing, growing up in the evangelical churches, and even as I go through to the Catholic Church, I come across people who say, you know, my parents go to church, so because they go to church, this is what I believe. Well, we all need to make a choice. Just because your parents may be strong Catholics doesn't mean that you necessarily are. Um, you have to make a choice at some point whether you are going to believe what the church says or not. So the creed starts with, I believe. And so there's really there's, there's many levels of belief. So there's belief that makes no difference. So I could say, I believe that there is a Los Angeles. Now, I'm from Los Angeles, so for me it means something. But for someone who may be in Iowa, great. I know Los Angeles is there. doesn't do a whole lot for me. Whatever. Who cares? It's, I know it's there, but it doesn't really matter to me. And then there's a belief that makes some difference. So I remember going to the doctor many times, Gary, and says, you need to start exercising a little more because exercise is going to make a difference. It's going to make you feel better. Well, that's great. That may be a belief that you have, but I need to, I need to be able to put that into effect. Okay, then there's a belief that demands a response, and that's what the creed does. Okay, if, we tr- if I truly believe, it's going to change my outlook on life. Okay, this is... This is the level of belief that begins with the Nicene Creed. I believe in, in what? What do we believe in? It says, I believe in one God. That's a very powerful statement. Now, today we kind of take it for granted. But go back to the beginning of sacred scripture, where God is revealing himself to Abraham and Moses as the one true God. They were in societies that worshipped many gods. Okay. Mm-hmm. And even during when the creed was formulated during the Roman Empire, there were many gods in the Roman Empire. So saying that there is one God was a very powerful statement, and it was a very divisive statement in a lot of ways. And, and Gary, as you know, when the church first started, one of the charges against the church was that they were atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. And so when we say in the creed that there is one God, and that's the God who's revealed himself, you know, to the Israelite people, et cetera, that's a very divisive statement. So we need to understand that. Do we believe in one God, or is there something that we're putting above God? And I think just those first four words or first five words there that we've gone over already, um, people take for granted. I believe in one God. Okay, great. I mean, I know there's one God. Well, there's people all around the world that believe in several gods. There's probably some, your next-door neighbor probably believes in other gods. Now, you believe in one God. What are you going to do with it? Yeah. Are you going to go share it? Are you going to hold it in, bottle it in? What are you going to do? Um, and yeah. then the next, next line, I believe in one God, the Father. This is a very powerful thing as well. I mean, Father is the name that Jesus himself used and gave to us. And so we use the word Father to refer to God, and it may seem commonplace today. We say, okay, God is our Father. That's great. Fantastic. But it was a very unique place in the early years of the Church. No other religion dared to bring God into such intimate relationship to man that we will consider ourselves his children. I mean, think about that. The creator of the universe, is call- we- we're able to call him Father because we're his children. Now, we shouldn't fail to grasp that significance and that uniqueness of that relationship that we have as Christians, that we profess to God. 
And Gary, the catechism in paragraph 239 uh, puts it this way, and it's a fairly lengthy paragraph, so forgive me. But it says, by calling God Father, the language of faith indicates two main things, that God is the first origin of everything and transcendent authority, and that he is at the same time goodness and loving care for all his children. God's parental tenderness can also be expressed by the image of motherhood, which emphasizes God's eminence, the intimacy between creator and creation. The language of faith thus draws on the human experience of parents who are in a way the first representatives of God for man. But this experience also tells us that human parents are fallible and can disfigure the face of fatherhood and motherhood. We ought therefore to recall that God transcends the human distinction between the sexes. He's neither man or woman, he is God. He also transcends human fatherhood and motherhood. Although he is their origin and standard, no one is father as God is father. And so we call God Father because he's Father of the universe. He created everything. And there's the music, so I'll continue on later, Gary. (laughs) All right. We're chatting with William Hemsworth, talking about the creed. And uh, we'll have a lot more to come right after this. Stay tuned, everyone. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. We're chatting with William Hemsworth of The Bible Catholic on YouTube. Also check out stuff at williamhemsworth.com. We're talking about the creed and diving deep into the creed. And uh, so, yeah, you you were just about to unpack that uh, quotation from the Catechism about the fatherhood of God. And then the music came up, William, so I'll just let you pick it up from there. <laughs> oh, thank you very much, Gary. Oh, Merry Christmas, by the way. Oh, Merry Christmas right. to you as so, well. Yeah. Thank you. So as I was thing before the break, Father, he's the father of the universe because he created everything. He's the father of humanity because he created mankind. He's a loving and caring father that wants us to be with him. He's father because he sustains us. And he's Father because he makes us his children through baptism. Um, And then the next couple words of the Creed, after the Father, is the Almighty. So being Almighty implies not only that his might is greater than anything or anyone else, it also means that it's universal. For God created everything, and he rules everything, and he can do everything. And like you said, some of these things, Gary, we just kind of speed through, like, oh, great, homily's over. It's time to go to the creed. I believe in God's Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We try to get through it as fast as we can, and we're doing ourselves a great disservice by not reflecting on these things. Yeah, yeah. So God is almighty not in that he is, like, the strongest being, you know, in creation. God is almighty because right. he is might itself. And so when we see... Exactly. Something that is mighty, that's just a created, you know, drip of a reflection of, of God. Right, exactly. The God is almighty. Yeah. He created everything. He's existed before everything. He's everything, essentially. And so, again, the Catechism, it says, Of all the divine attributes, only God's omnipotence is named in the creed. To confess this power has great bearing on our lives. We believe that his might is universal, for God who created everything also rules everything and can do everything. God's power is loving, for he is our Father, and mysterious, for only faith can discern it. 
when it is made perfect in weakness. And of course, the next few words of the creed, he's the maker of heaven and earth. Now, I think and when I, when I when I catechize children, we go over the creed. I ask them, what is this what does this part of the creed mean to you? And they say, well, he made heaven and earth. Logical answer for a child, but it's so much more than that. The expression heaven and earth means that he created all that exists, creation in its whole entirety. And it also indicates the bond within creation that both unites heaven and earth and that it's distinguished, that distinguishes one from another. So the earth is the world of men, while heaven is God's domain, if you will. It's his place. It's the place of spiritual creatures where the angels and the saints surround God worshiping for all eternity. So yeah. I think just that line right there, Gary, we, we lose track of. We say, okay, oh, yeah. great, heaven and earth. But man, I mean, when you dwell, it, it just doesn't mean heaven and earth. It's everything. Everything you see, the trees, the ocean, your dog, whatever the case is, God is the cause. And it helps, it, when we, we, you reflect on those lines, you realize how small you are. And that's not a bad thing. It, lets us, it helps us remain humble before an all-powerful God that's created everything. And it helps us realize that we are here to serve him and to make him known in a better way. Yeah, now, all, all that is seen in. I'm sorry, go ahead, Gary. Oh, no, uh, no, I, I, yeah, absolutely, totally agree. I mean, uh, and okay. this is one of those lines of the creed I think that uh, society's forgetting, you know, that not only did God create all things and sustains all things, but He created in a particular way, and that there's a wise way that's like yeah. knit into creation. Um, now, fortunately, absolutely. we think we can just toy with and there won't be any consequences. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. You can continue, Williams. Well, no, and, and I agree 100. percent And 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 we can look we can look all around not only in society but in in individuals and see that there is consequences for messing with that. But like you said, we'll move on. <laughs> but <laughs> right. all that all that is seen and unseen. Now, this is something. Um, now there were there were some early heresies that believed in what's called in God's split dominion. And so that there's like a good nature for the supernatural that's not seen and an evil nature for the natural um, that we do see. And so the Gnostics believe that, you know, they believed in this dualistic concept of there was this good God and this bad God and the bad God created all the material things and all that. And, and the, the Nicene Creed here is like, no, by declaring that God created all that is seen and unseen, unseen means God created everything. So there's no one God created this and one God created that. It's not a dualistic nature. No. God created all that you see and all that you don't see. And so they're answering a lot of these early heresies um, in, in these creeds. I mean, Gnosticism could fall in here, but as we're going to see later on in the creed, obviously Arianism is a big one that they're going to condemn as well in the creed. Yeah. So we oh, yeah. believe in one, the big time, we believe in one Lord. Now, in Jesus' time, lordship meant absolute undisputed ownership. So the person called Lord was like an absolute undisputed master. So throughout the New Testament, those who interacted with Jesus, but maybe didn't believe who Jesus said he was, addressed him with other titles of honor, like teacher, rabbi, etc. 
But the titles of Lord and Master were reserved only for his disciples and apostles, so those who really believed. And in John chapter 6, we see that Judas turns on Jesus during the Bread of Life discourse, and this is what John writes. He says, but there are some, this is what Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe, and Jesus knew from the beginning the ones who would not believe and the one who would betray him. Um, and again, in Mark, he, Judas, came and immediately went over to him, Jesus, and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And so by professing Jesus as Lord, like his disciples, we signify that he is undisputed master of our lives and is worthy of worship. So if Jesus is Lord of our lives, Gary, and I think this is a big one that society misses as well, because there's this notion in society that I'm my own person, I could do what I want, and no one's going to tell me what to do. Well, if you're saying that you are a servant of Christ, if you're professing that Christ is Lord over your life, does your life show it? Or are you just going to Mass an hour on Sunday morning, and you're walking out of, the, out of those doors, getting on with your business? Okay, um, there, there, I saw a meme recently, and I've heard this several times before, that, you know, Jesus wants full-time custody, not just weekend visits. Okay? Jesus wants, if, he, if we're calling Jesus Lord, he needs to be, we need, that has to be reflected in our lives on a daily basis. By your, by your living, through your friends, your family, your neighbors, know that you're a Christian. If not, we need to reevaluate that. Now, we're all going to mess up. We're all going to sin. Thank God for confession. But we need to, we need to, if we're professing this creed, like we do every, every Mass, we're saying that we believe in one Lord. The word Lord means that he's master over our lives. But then the creed continues. Who was the Lord? The Lord is Jesus Christ. Jesus means the Lord saves. And it's very significant that Jesus was given a human name, okay, because it demonstrates his humanity. Jesus is fully God, and he's fully human. And so we, we've come kind of accustomed to calling uh, the Son of Man by the name Jesus Christ. But there's significance in that word Christ there, and this is something I think we gloss over as well. Christ means um, anointed. And it's not just a name, it's a title, it's like a job description. So in the Old Testament, Priests, prophets, and kings were anointed with oil as a sign of being chosen by God. And so Jesus Christ, the anointed one, Jesus saved, the Lord saves. He's the anointed. He's the Son of God that came to save us from our sins. And I definitely think the meaning of those two names we don't talk about enough because we reflect on those and gather so much and grow so much in our faith just by understanding his mission, and those names, um, and applying those to our lives. <clears throat> yeah, me. yeah, no doubt, yeah. Uh, uh, which is unfortunate because, uh, you know, Yeshua, like you said, it's Yahweh yep. saves, and literally yep. it's, you know, Yahweh's with us. Yahweh is our Savior, and you see that in Zechariah. So, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, even just the, the names that we, we take for granted, like the holy name of Jesus, uh, that's fruitful meditation right there. And again, like you said, it's got to be applied. It isn't just, this isn't just words we recite. It's got to make a difference in your life if you truly believe it. Right. 
then the creed moves on. The only Son of God, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. So the only Son of God means that Jesus' relationship to God is different than ours. Jesus is both God and man. And throughout the Old and New Testaments, two special titles have been reserved for Jesus, Son of Man and Son of God. Now, one of the big ones, Gary, is this next part. God from God, light from light. True God from true God, begotten, not made. You know, consubstantial with the Father. So this phrase, this phrase was added because of the Arian heresy. So when you hear eternally begotten, now one might tend to think about the future of eternity. But eternity doesn't go only forward. Eternity also goes backwards. It, it's all time. Okay, so Jesus as God has always existed. As humans who live in the realm of sequential time, this is hard to understand. Okay, someone always existing. You know, we just celebrated, we had Christmas Day on Sunday, and it's very easy to visualize Jesus being born, etc. And as powerful as that is, we lose track that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has always existed. So we could visualize Jesus being born, but we can't visualize him also always existing. So as humans, it's a tough concept to understand. So Arius, Arius' battle cry was, the Logos is not eternal. God begot him, and before he was begotten, he did not exist. And I'll leave it there, Gary. Yeah, very good. Hello, there he is. We're chatting with William Hemsworth, talking about the Creed. A lot more to come right after this. Stay tuned, everybody. Now, back to Hands On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands On Apologetics. We are chatting with William Hemsworth. Uh, Bible Catholic, and we're talking about the creed. And William, I love the way you set this up because you're exactly right. When we're professing that Christ is eternal, you know, uh, not created, that's uh, hard for us to grasp. It's not something we can imagine. But a created thing is a lot easier to imagine, and that's where Arius comes in because. Arius basically takes the supernatural revelation of the inner life of God and makes it palatable, but he also kind of makes it pagan, too. Right. And so he said, the Logos is not eternal. God begat him, and, and before he was begotten, he did not exist. Now, obviously, that's, that's a problem, okay, because if Jesus didn't always exist, it means he had a beginning, which means he's just another created person, um, which means that the person who died on the cross was not the Son of God, which means just another guy that died on a cross, which means we're still dead in our sin. There's all these big ramifications when you take it to its logical conclusion. But I like St. Athanasius's reply to him. He says, The begetting of the Logos was not an event in time, but an eternal relationship. So it's, it's a relationship that has always existed, and it will always continue to exist. Um, now, the creed here, let's say there was a spirited argument on what words to use. And guys, I know you know where this is going, because you've, you've, you've talked about this a million times as well. Um, the, the fathers of the council, um, they were arguing over two words. One was homoousios, which means like same substance as the father, homoousios, which means like or similar 
substance. Now, there's a big difference between these words. If you go to the latter, homoousios, which is like, if something is like something, it means it is not something. So if Jesus is a like substance of God the Father, that means he is not God. He's just some other entity, if you will. And and this is this is kind of what the Jehovah's Witnesses fall into a little bit, and in, in another realm, um, our Mormon friends fall into as well, when they when they try to discern what the Trinity is and isn't. But the fathers of the church settled on homoousios, same substance. So consubstantial with the Father, or he, Jesus is of the same substance of the Father. He's one being with the Father. So these are this is a big difference here. If he's the same substance as, as the Father, it means he is God. And that changes everything. Yeah. God himself yeah, died on the cross for us, for you and I. And that's something we really need to ponder. I mean, how awesome that is, that God loves us so much that not only would he, as the book of Philippians says, condescend, come down from heaven, right? Take on human nature, along with his divine nature. Jesus was both. But died for the sins of man. It's an awesome thought when I, I mean, I, I know everyone who's listening here. I hope they think of it as an awesome thought. And I hope we take time to reflect on it and to give thanks, especially during the season that we're in, the Christmas season. Because without Christmas, there is no cross. And um, we, I think we lose sight of that a little bit. We go through it, we talk about the creed, we recite it, and we go over these awesome things that God has done for us without a second thought. It's just like, okay, whatever, it's another day, but we really need to ponder these things a lot more. Yeah, um, absolutely. Next line, through him all things were made. Now, this is actually a direct quote from John 1, 3. All right, so... Together, this means that the Son is not a created thing. Rather, he is an agent through whom all created things came into being. And for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. Now, I've touched on this a little bit already. But Jesus' purpose for becoming man was to forgive sin, and for, he's coming for the salvation of man. He did this through his once and complete sacrifice on the cross. I mean... Ah, I get kind of choked up on this. Okay, think about some of the things I've done in my life, but he loved me so much for that to happen. And we've all done things, Gary. All of us are not, we have, all have skeletons in the closet. But we can't hide from God. Even though all, he knows all those things, he says, still says, no, I love you that much. I'm still going to do it. We're still going to make this happen. I'm still coming to die for you. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. Now, from the first formulations of the faith, the church has held that Jesus was conceived solely by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, the church sees this conception as a sign that it truly was a son of God who came in into humanity like our own. Now, Through the Incarnation, the union of the human and divine, which was divided at one point through the fall, is reunited again. 
I don't know about you, Gary. When I talk, when I teach the creed and I mention that part, mm-hmm. very few people actually realize that. So during the fall, we became separated from God through sin. Jesus taking on human flesh reunited which was once divided. And it's very powerful when you think about it. I mean, again, for our yeah. sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. So someone asked me one time, why are we picking on Pilate here? Wasn't it Herod the Great who tried uh, to kill Jesus at his birth and result in the slaughter of innocents? Wasn't Pilate under Herod's jurisdiction? Uh, weren't the Pharisees trying to trick him? Now, the answer is that it was Pilate's decision that counted because he was a representative of Caesar. And symbolically, Pilate represents all of those. Now, times past and today that contribute to the passion and death of Jesus through sin. That means you and I. He's kind of that, he's that stand in, if you will, in the story. Now, could Jesus have died in crucifixion was considered the worst possible death. Not only was it long and painful, because people died through suffocation, but it was a public humiliation that was reserved for the worst of criminals. Now, our Lord died crucifixion. He died for our sin. And so I had to describe him one time as that we may as well have been there with the hammer, you know, nailing him with the, nailing his hands to the cross. To mention Pontius Pilate here is a very important thing as well because the link to history. Because there are some today who say that Jesus never really existed. He's just this mythical character. Now, for those who think that, they're definitely not paying attention to history because we have tons of reports outside of Scripture naming Jesus. I mean, we have the historian Taxes, we have Pliny the Younger, all kinds of other historians during that era, era Josephus, talking about Jesus existing, some of the things he did, what his followers are doing, and all this. But Pontius Pilate, we, there's engravings naming him as governor of Judea and all these other things. So it's this historical linkage that Jesus is a historical figure. He really did exist. He really did die on the cross because those other documents outside of Scripture say that he did. And I, I think we lose track of that as well when we're talking about the creed. I think sometimes we have this tendency to just focus on um, what we're reading in Scripture, which is a great thing, and we should do that. We need to read Scripture on a daily basis. But we forget that there's all these other sources outside of Scripture that mention Jesus, that attest the things that he did, and that attest the things that his followers did. Um, we, lose track, we lose track of that as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, and that's why it's important not to, like I said, you know, throw your brain on autopilot and just go through it. Right. But, uh, you you got to think about what you're saying that you believe and you got to apply it in your life, because if you don't do that, you know, it's just words and you're you're, you're not living in accord with how things truly are. Right. And we're only about halfway, maybe a little more than halfway through the creed. And already we can see so many things that we can reflect on. What does it mean to believe? Who is God? Who is the person of Jesus Christ? What did he do? Um, How did he live his life? Um, 
what is creation? Okay. Um, did Jesus exist eternally or did he not? The creed answers that for us. Like I said at the top of the show, Gary, the creed is a prayer. It's an awesome contemplation tool. Um, now, in the Apostles' Creed, which is a shorter version of the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed is in the rosary, because you're reflecting on that. But if we, if we take time to reflect on the creed, whether it's once a day, once a week, twice a week, whatever the case is, or just consciously paying attention to what we're saying at Mass when we're saying the creed, we're going to realize the love of God, what love God has for us in a whole new way. That it's just going to blow our minds when we start applying these things in our lives. Um, there's going to be a, a I, I think by reflecting on these things, you can't help but change for the better. Because you're going to realize all that God has done for you. You're going to realize who God is. You're going to realize how much God loves you. You're going to realize, you're going to have a whole new appreciation for things around you because God has created it. You're going to have an appreciation for who you're interacting with because they're made in the image of God. It's going to, be, it's going to extend every facet of our lives. And like you said, sometimes we lose track of that. And so hopefully, hopefully by hearing this, people are awakened to that a little more and they're self-reflecting a little more, maybe praying, reflecting on these things. And just by doing so, like I said, a million times, it's going to help you grow in your faith. You can't help but grow in your faith by reflecting on the creed. Yeah, especially for those who defend the faith, too. It's very important to integrate your studies right. with your faith life, you know, and, and there shouldn't be two different compartments. They should be one in the same. And so that's right. I really appreciate you going through the creed because that, you know, we learn about the Trinity. We learn all these important doctrines. But like you said, if you uh, really dive into it, it'd be transforming. It transforms your life. Uh, William, <laughs> yeah, we're already up to the end of the program. Uh, tell the listeners where they could check out all your stuff. Well, you can go to my website, williamhemsworth.com. Um, I have all the links up there to my YouTube channel, and um, I started the Bible Catholic show. It's a podcast of mine. I started that back up again, so there's 10 episodes of that. So we have a lot of things going on. I thank everyone for their support. And Gary, thanks again for having me on. I always appreciate it. Hey, it's always a pleasure having you on. Uh, thanks for coming. And, and maybe we could do another show and do the rest of the creed. Yeah, part two. Sounds good. All right. That's William Hemsworth. Check it out. WilliamHemsworth.com, YouTube, uh, Bible uh, Catholic. And, man, uh, all things must come to an end, all good things. And uh, that's what happened. Coming up next, the Terry Dusty Show. Hi, Impact Catholic Talk coming at you. Thank you so much for listening. And God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Bye-bye, everyone.